What are your favorite stories in the Gospels? Do you especially like the miracle stories where the power of the kingdom of God at your fingertips comes and invades the world around us? Maybe you like the mercy stories. Jesus bowing even farther to come lower to us who desperately needs his touch but doesn't deserve it. Maybe you like the what I call the human stories where Jesus shows us that he is fully man as well as fully divine. I love the stories of the Gospels. The four Gospels are my favorite books in, in the Bible, of course, because we get to see Jesus. We get to see him with us and how then we can be more like him. All three of these kinds of stories converge in our passage tonight. As you remember, we're continuing in this series in which we're looking at specific miracles that are given so that we can see discipleship emphases. And then we are also given specific teachings on how we can be more the disciples that God has created us to be. We can be winners of souls and disciple-making disciples. That is what we're going to see today. We're going to see where Jesus teaches us one more time how to be one who follows him. And we're going to take it from Matthew chapter 9. And I'm going to read for us 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Tonight, we're going to learn that those who recognize their need for Jesus find mercy. Here, we find Jesus coming to rescue one who was so lost that even by the standard of those who were lost considered, well, that guy's really lost. You, you ever meet people like that? You know, well, do you need religion? No, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Do you, do you ever talk to people? Well, I'm a good person. I'm not, you know, like one of those hypocrites or I'm not fill in the blank. Well, this guy was one of those fill in the blanks. He was the bad of the bad. We're not just talking about the normal, everyday, lying, coveting, stealing, you know, normal people who deserve to be separated from God forever. But as we see, Jesus is the one who calls even the bad people. Jesus is the one, wait, who parties 
with the bad people. Jesus is the one who appeals to those who are harsh with his people. Tonight, I want you and me to recognize our need for Jesus because he is already ready to shower you with mercy. Let's look at our text. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now remember, as we're going through the Gospels, you need to find your sanctified imagination. Here is a guy who collects taxes. Probably what happened was he was sitting on the road between the lake and the town. And people would walk by and he says, what's that? Uh, that'll be two denarii. That'll be five shekels. That'll be, and he's the one who's collecting taxes. When he got up out of his chair and followed Jesus, Matthew turned his back on his entire way of life. He would never ever get his old job back. There was some other thug standing by just waiting for the opportunity to take Matthew's place at raping the people who were walking by on the road. Furthermore, no one would conceive of hiring a former tax collector. The Jews are going to see him and they're going to be like, oh, disgusted. And any Roman who might hire Matthew is going to think, why would I want to hire someone who was a traitor? He's obviously not going to be trustworthy for me either. So when we get to Matthew 9.9, we have to ask Matthew a question. You know the question. After the Super Bowl, whoever wins the Super Bowl, someone always comes and sticks a microphone in their face and they say, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do now? And the answer is always. But this time we ask Matthew, so Matthew, you just lost everything in the world. What are you going to do now? And Matthew's answer is, I'm throwing a party. Now, this is crazy. He just literally turned his back on everything he knew. And what is he going to do? I'm throwing a party. There was, of course, no Disneyland. And the only real possibility of the happiest place on earth 2,000 years ago or today is always wherever Jesus is. The happiest place on earth is wherever Jesus wants you to be. This is like the man who found the treasure in the field. And he went back home and he had a fire sale. He had a, the ultimate garage sale of garage sales. He sold everything that he did. And he says, with joy. In other words, he's giving, he's giving his grandma's treasures away so that he can get money. And in his joy, he goes and buys the field. And he's like, yes! Imagine, just for a moment, talk, pause, whatever you're thinking about right now, and I want you just to imagine, what would it look like to find something so enormously value, valuable that all of your gilded dreams end up looking like broken matchsticks, which is exactly what they are. 
And you're willing to give up the whole box of matchsticks so you can have whatever is this valuable. Well, Matthew found it. Matthew found it. And he was willing and able to stand up and turn his back on all the extortion, all the lies, all the cover-ups, all the beating people who weren't paying him enough money. And he jumped full in with Jesus. I don't remember if it was my first year of seminary or my second year of seminary, but right at the end of the year, this couple who was graduating uh, told everybody, we're moving to South Central L.A. Why on earth would you move to South Central L.A.? Why would you do that? You just graduated seminary. And I'll never forget the lady's answer. She said to whoever it was who asked the question, I, I don't remember who it was, the safest place is wherever Jesus wants you to be. That was true 2,000 years ago at the side of the Lake of Galilee. That's true, oh my goodness, 18 years ago in South Central LA. And that's true today as well. Those who recognize their need of Jesus more than all the matchsticks on earth will find Jesus merciful. Now, apparently, the story continues. Matthew, or excuse me, Jesus followed Matthew home. Verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with him and his disciples. Get this. If you don't get any other lessons tonight, Jesus loved parties. Jesus loves parties. Does that shock you? Jesus, in fact, loved parties so much that he and his dad made Israel go three times a year. Count them. One, two, three times a year. Wherever they were, they had to march up to Jerusalem and they had a mandatory party in Jerusalem. Not only that, but he and his dad promised to protect everybody's stuff while they were away. In Exodus 34, 24, no one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. In other words, you're worried about your cows and stuff like that? I got your back. Don't worry. That's because Jesus loved parties so much. We know that Jesus loved parties because he went to so many of them. And at least once, Jesus provided the refreshments. But we won't talk about that. Indeed, while we're on the topic, let's note the fact that sinners and other disreputable people, you know, those really bad people, you know, those fill-in-the-blank kind of people, you know, all of the people that Matthew hung around with. They often spend times at parties imbibing because eating, drinking, and being merry is the only joy many find on earth. Now pause. I just said a couple of times Jesus loves parties. But it's not because Jesus thinks that imbibing eating, drinking, and being merry is the end-all, be-all of life. You and I know that's not true. The reason 
really bad people need to go to parties all the time is because there is no lasting joy outside of Jesus. I expect an amen. amen. <laughs> Thought I was going to get a louder one. <laughs> the world keeps chasing after one thrill after another and these parties are just the easiest way to get that. Ought you and I not be able to limit our desires so that we can help those who are trapped in their addictions out there in the world? Ought you and I not be able to go to one of these parties to show them mercy that we're going to find in a moment? And that mercy is going to be in saying, showing how this isn't really what you're after. This isn't really what you need Ought we not to be like our maker and Lord who loves a desperate soul? Pity the people who love to party, but not in a I'm better than you way. Because you're not. You're not better than the most rowdy partiers that ever walked the earth. Rather, love them in their desperation and be the desperate beggar who's showing another desperate beggar where to find bread. Show yourself to be merciful like your Lord Jesus. Because those who recognize their need for Jesus, every single one of us finds him merciful. The story continues, verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, that Jesus is going out and hanging around with sinners, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, of course, there is a very good answer to that, and that is found in chapter 11, verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus allowed himself and did not argue when people called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In fact, exactly the opposite. He received that and said, hey, wisdom is justified or wisdom is shown to be wisdom by the deeds done by the one who is wise. Matthew's guests were traitors of their nation. Matthew's guests were traitors from their God. Matthew's guests were traitors to the very person the very king they were partying with that night. And that king whom, against whom, with whom they were partying, against whom they rebelled, was receiving them. He was partying right along with them. And they rebelled against them, at least in part. I, I'm not saying this is the whole story, okay? So don't, don't, go to Pastor Benji and the elders and complain about this one. They rebelled against their king, at least in part, because they did not know their king. Because the people who were responsible for showing them who their king was failed. So Jesus went to the party himself to show him what he really looked like. 
God forbid that you and I should fail. So, the king had to come on his own to his own. And that monarch accepted the fellowship of these social outcasts, these people who were outcast by those who considered themselves close to God, but who couldn't be farther from the truth. And the question that the Pharisees are asking here is really an allegation more than a request for information. Those who were saying it were seeking to plant seeds of doubt in the hearts of his followers, not just learn information. In fact, the farthest thing from their minds as they were asking this question was to open themselves up for rebuke. But evidently, Jesus was near enough by to hear their question and answered. When Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now verse 12 here teaches at least two things simultaneously. Only those who recognize their need, only those who recognize their illness will seek the advice of a physician. And only those who recognize their need will have their needs addressed. And secondly, if you are one of those people who believes themselves well, then ought not you and I to be in the business of connecting these ill people to their Lord rather than setting up a giant barrier between them? Or worse, never making an effort to build a bridge to get them to their physician through you? We, instead, often shoo people away from the only place where they can actually prepare for battle. You see, many consider the church to be a hospital. I don't think that that is true to its extent, but I think a better image is that the church is an army barrack. It's where soldiers get their wounds attended. It's where they consume the food that will energize and not stupefy them. The church is the barrack where they become mentally prepared to fight the war that doesn't necessarily take place at work or take place at home or take place in the store or wherever else they may be. Because everybody in this room knows where the real battle takes place right here in our hearts. And every single person needs to be strengthened, to be equipped, to be enabled to fight that battle. And the church is where that happens. Mercy, mercy that Jesus is talking to us about here is the doctor, is the person at the barracks who knowingly, graciously, and intentionally probes and cuts and heals instead of what normally happens, and that is throwing your pearls of advice to the pigs who are still wallowing in the mire. Let us not be those who cast pearls before pigs. What does it mean to throw your pearls before the swine as Matthew, Jesus talks about in Matthew 7? 
It is to give advice to those that you consider beneath you. Instead of believing that they are beneath you, that you just need to graciously toss out pearls of your wisdom to, instead of that, walk in their shoes. Feel their blisters. Offer them your shoes. The Pharisees scoffed. They accused. But Jesus went to their parties and healed, bringing good shoes and carried good news. Remember, Never forget, remember, remember. No one is beneath you. No homosexual activist, no abortionist, no evolutionist. All of these, these are your brothers, these are your sisters, these are your mothers. You owe them your love, not your condemnation. Because, as it has been said, the ground is level at the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. One of the most important jobs of the doctor who works for the great physician is to spread grace and mercy that God wants from those around you so much more than sacrifice. God doesn't want you to sacrifice by throwing pearls to swine. God wants mercy to go into you and then through you to those who are near you. More than the people you call a sinner giving some sacrifice to make up for their, you know, their terrible ways that they've been rescued out of. What God wants more is for you to show them mercy so that they can joyfully turn from their sin and throw away their box of matchsticks and buy that field that has the treasure in it, joyfully giving up everything they had so that they can receive the treasure that will last for an eternity. Because those who recognize right now their need for Jesus, the great physician of their soul and mind, will find that Jesus merciful. You cannot outsin grace, my friends. And neither can those who you work with. Neither can those around whom you live. They say that more flies will be caught with honey than with vinegar. Be a honeybee spreading that honey around. The story continues, verse 12. But when he heard it, they said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not sinners. Now the question that we need to address, because I've been 
bringing it up all the way through is what is this mercy stuff that Jesus is talking about? Well, Jesus here is specifically quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where it says in the ESV, For I desire steadfast love, and that's the Hebrew word that's translated in Matthew chapter 9, the word that's translated uh, mercy. For I desire mercy or steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Time out for a second. Many of you have heard me because I need to repeat things. Because I so easily forget. And one of the things you've all heard me repeat over and over and over again is, Lord, let us know you better because as we know you better, we will therefore love you and trust you more. And that's exactly what Hosea is getting at here. He's wanting you to know God because as you know God better, you will therefore love him and trust him more. And if you're loving him and trusting him more, you won't need to sacrifice because you'll be living out of that mercy. Now, okay, neither Jesus nor Hosea here are advocating a disregard for temple sacrifices. Okay, we need to, we need to kind of grasp that. Oh, temple's gone. We're not sacrificing lambs anymore. I understand that. But the point I think for us, at least a point, is that we're not just flippant with how we go about worshiping. Rather, we recognize that true worship is showing mercy, showing steadfast love to those who are around us. Now, both Pastor Benji and I have on at least two occasions each spent time talking about this particular word that's translated steadfast love. And the idea behind this word steadfast love or as it is often translated as some sort of mercy or faithful mercy or covenant mercy is translated usually uh, kindness is another way this word is translated. But this Idea is one of the most important words, ideas, in the entire Old Testament. And Jesus takes this concept from the Old Testament and he requires this kind of love that is steadfast. This kind of love that is merciful. A love that goes beyond the social niceties that we are all guilty of, that favors those who are closest to us, those who look like us, those of us who go to the same church, those of us who go to the same stores. Your God and mine is interested in a kind of love that reaches out and offers not pearls of advice, but healing that cannot be found anywhere else. I'm not advocating, back to the right worship thing, neither is Jesus nor Hosea, we're not advocating neglecting your time in God's word each day or neglecting your duty to pray each day or neglecting the opportunities of service and outreach which in themselves are these acts of steadfast love and we're not 
advocating neglecting the spending, uh, neglecting time together intentionally kicking each other in the ribs with sharp metal objects to get us to do love and good works because you realize that's exactly what Hebrews is commanding us to do. But let us not be distracted from the context. While you're doing your Bible study, while you're doing your prayer, while you're doing your service outreach, while you're doing your fellowship, don't forget that this passage in particular is talking about giving mercy to those who are not like you. All those wicked sinners, the homosexual activists, the abortionists, the, the evolutionists. What would happen to their mind if all of a sudden you came up and started loving them just because you ran into them at the store? Oh my. You might actually get into a real conversation you might actually learn that they have some powerful hurts that need to be healed. And that's why they're acting out in this way. You might find out that they've never met a real Christian before. And they have all kinds of weird ideas about you. That with just a few kind words chosen by your Holy Father through you can break some ice. Those who recognize their need for Jesus will find him merciful. Be that person who is willing and able to reach beyond our dailiness of life and enable others to see the merciful Lord in you. Now, I need to address one more thing that's only kind of tangentially brought about in this passage. But if you don't understand it, you might get confused by what Jesus is saying. And it begins with a theological concept. It happens to be the only theological idea that we talk about in the English language that comes from the English language. It's called the atonement. And the atonement is being at one with God. That's literally where that word came, comes from. It's the only theological word I can think of that does that. And you must understand the atonement if you're, under, if you're to understand Jesus and Matthew's point in relaying this history of Jesus and the tax collector. If you can imagine the atonement as a quarter, then there's two sides to that quarter. One is redemption and the other is justification. Redemption is Christ taking us out of the slave market of sin. Or Paul simplifies the idea and says redemption is the forgiveness of sins. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now the second side of that quarter called atonement is justification. And justification is being declared righteousness or counted as righteous. God the Father speaks righteousness into existence in your account, so to speak. He just speaks and poof, there's righteousness credited to you. We see that among many places in Romans 4. For if Abraham was justified by works, if he was declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. He trusted God's promises and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now you and I need the whole quarter. We need redemption, the wiping out of our sins, and we need justification, the adding of righteousness to our account in order for us to be saved. Now why bring this up? Why that little momentary theological lesson. First of all, because you need to understand this. You as Christians need to understand what these terms are and how they relate to each other. And part of Pastor Benji, Pastor James, and my job is to enable you yourselves to go to God's word and understand it. But the second reason we need to bring this up is because Jesus is so forceful in saying, go and learn. He's talking to the Pharisees who don't have the first concept of mercy as being more valuable and important than sacrifice. And they have to catch this. Now, he's saying to them, don't just sit on your thumbs. Move, act, trust. And part of me enabling you to do exactly that is to explain this quarter of a of atonement and both redemption and and, um, justification. But the other reason is because in this story, Jesus is certainly not assuming that these Pharisees are the righteous ones. He's not assuming that. Instead, he is assuming the opposite of that. Y'all over there who think you're righteous, wake up. Hello, McFly. Oh, sorry. Um, Anyways. Quite the opposite. Rather than trusting in Yahweh for their righteousness because they were sinners, they had not yet been justified and they had not yet been redeemed. So there was no atonement. They were not at one with God. They could have been. They could have looked and seen Jesus standing right in front of them. They could have recognized their need for him and received mercy from the great physician who will heal any who come to him for healing. Your Lord and creator, my Lord and creator, as we have discovered in these last weeks, might... He is able to cure your cancer. He is able to cure your unemployment, your poor relationships, the frustrations of things that are going on around you. But what we have learned in these last weeks in Matthew 8 and 9 is if you turn to Jesus, he will heal you. He will restore you to himself for your joy, his glory, and the growth of his kingdom. And you want to hear a secret? Jesus can even heal you and me from our tendency towards Pharisaism. He can free us from our blindness to our own, even greater than you recognize need of Jesus and he can free you from your own even greater need than you recognize of mercy 
in your heart towards those who inhabit the space closest to you. Go, recognize your need for Jesus and he will give you that mercy for yourself and so that you can be a conduit, you can be a garden hose of mercy to those who are nearest to you. Lord Almighty, we ask that you would make us a conduit of mercy. We ask that you would make us the kind of people who are willing and able to show mercy, to be mercy, so that we can, by your healing, be healthy ourselves and then show those who are around us where they can find that healing themselves. Bless us, Jesus, so that we may be a blessing. We love you, Jesus. Amen.